Welcome back to Undercover. My name's Jacqueline Stanley and I'm the producer of the first episode. In early April, the Victorian state government banned commercial fishing in Port Phillip Bay, some five years after the proposed legislation was put to Parliament and the Bay's net fishers were given warning that the end of the line was near. The voice you're about to hear is Phil McAdam. He's been catching local sardines on a commercial basis since he was 13. It's a shame for the people of Victoria. You know, the government's done a very good job, spent $27 million on buying out the commercial fishermen in Port Phillip Bay and removing 600 tonnes of fresh local seafood from the plates of Victorian people. You've just heard the voice of Phil McAdam, a commercial angler whose family have fished the bay for generations. Since 2015, the government has invested $27 million to ferry along the bay's transition into a haven for recreational fishers. They say a ban on the commercial guys is expected to free up some 600 tonnes of fish, and recreational anglers are likely to get on board because it gives them access to the stuff previously netted by professionals before the small fry even had a chance to reel them in. But this sea change has brought with it a tidal wave of contempt. As the government's efforts come to fruition, 35 of the bay's 43 original net fishers have left for deeper waters. Those who remain in the bay will be forced to overhaul the way they fish and the species they target to avoid falling afoul of the new restrictions. 90, 90% of them took the buy out straight away. Straight up. Straight up, yeah. yeah. Right. And you, put a, you put half a million dollars or whatever on the table. Yeah. You can't blame them for considering that. <laughs> Even though... They found out later on, they gave it to them in one hand and then taxed them in the other hand. The remaining eight are charged with shifting their operations to cater to a limited hook and line snapper fishery. According to Phil, the closure has been a misguided effort. And, uh, last last financial year, we put 100 tonnes through the, through the uh, seafood centre for eating. It can't be replaced with anything fresh and local. Now, the, the, nearest, the nearest thing it can be replaced with... Uh, is fish from Lakes Entrance, which are 36 uh, hours older. With the shelf life of a sardine, that is a long time. We would catch the sardines at uh, 2 in the morning and uh, would have them in at the seafood centre at 4.35 o'clock and the Vic Market at 7. Others still think the move was purely political, fishing for votes rather than a market environmental impact. Whatever the case, April 1st ushered in the end of a saga since the fisheries amendment came into effect in 2015, the end of an era for an industry, and the beginning of a period of uncertainty for many. I'll go directly to the point with Port Phillip Bay, if I may, seeing the end to uh, netting, particularly for uh, sardine, pilchard, uh, white bait, you know. The thing is, that that affects the great um, offering that is out of Port Phillip Bay. That is all of Victoria's resource. That was Bill Tilley. Shadow Minister for Boating and Fishing and member for Benambra. He's been particularly concerned about the government's handling of these changes, especially when it came to the consultation members of the commercial fishing community were given on the matter. Here's Phil again. You know, after the announcement of the closure that we heard on the news, like everyone else, I received one letter from Fisheries Victoria saying, you know, uh, here to inform you that uh, the government decision has been made to close down commercial netting over the next eight years. And it wasn't until nine months later we got a meeting with 
uh, Jala Fulford. Uh, it was a meeting in, in at Spring Street in the city, and we walked into this room, and yeah, all sat down. She walked in. She said, "I'm here to give you certainty. You know, where, where, when you got your neck uh, in the noose, uh, it's not the sort of thing you want to hear." Mr. Tilly believes it's a sad indictment for the state government to treat Victorians in this way. You know, they should hang their heads in shame with this and the consultation. You know, any honest person, you know, you would look someone in the eye and you would talk to them, but this hasn't occurred as yet. Figures for the Bay's commercial production for the last calendar year show a 12-tonne decrease in the total catch from 2019. All in all, nothing jaw-dropping, but the devil's in the details. And if we look back to 2016, one year after the government's changes began to come into effect, the total output dropped by a whopping 345 tonnes. That's a decrease of 56%. So it's clear these changes are big, and supposedly it's all being done for the little guy, for the weekend anglers like you and I. But there's little guys working for the commercial fishers too. Well, they're out of a job, yeah. Uh, one bloke has been with me for 30 years, you know, he's, he's in his early 60s, where's he going to get a job? And what does a member from one of Victoria's most diehard recreational angling communities, a Spiro, have to say about all this? I'm Rick, I'm 72 years old. And for more than half a century, I've been an active freediver and spearfisherman. A fair bit of my spearfishing has been undertaken in Port Phillip Bay. As a younger man, Rick even did a stint as a deckhand in a commercial fishing outfit. And on top of that, he's worked as a fishery manager in multiple Australian states. When I started spearfishing, there was approximately one million people in Melbourne. Rick reckons that despite growing pressure on the fishery due to Melbourne's increasing population, his luck spearfishing in the bay has actually gotten better over the half century that I've been diving here. Rick thought it was important to point out that when he was a boy, people's view of commercial anglers was very different. Commercial fishermen were regarded very romantically. The social acceptance or social licence for commercial fishermen has been waning. Rick's thoughts on nets, however, are a bit different. Nets have had a bad rap over the years. You know, people call, talk about things like uh, walls of death and all the rest of it. But in fact, a net, when properly designed, can be one of the most selective forms of fishing. While Rick doesn't think that banning netting in the bay is a giant step forward for conservation, what he does think it is, is reallocation of resources. Away from the commercial sector to the recreational sector. As a spearfisher, I don't think this is a bad thing. And on top of that, he thinks it's definitely in line with community expectations. So commercial net fishing has sung its swan song in the bay. But what comes after? And, and Phil, what are, you, what are you going to do with yourself now, if you don't mind me asking? Don't know. <laughs> right. Don't know. This has been Tom Pazos with Undercover telling you what it's got to do with the price of fish. Now, the inflation rate has nearly tripled since 2019, but with the costly cocktail of fuel price increases, expensive supermarket products and global supply chain issues, the most vulnerable people in our community are taking a hit to their hip pocket. We know these economic circumstances have been sparked by a war in Europe's east and staff shortages on home turf, but what are the day-to-day consequences for people who are already disadvantaged? Ladies and gentlemen, the number one topic of conversation around the kitchen tables of Australia right now is cost of living. That was Josh Frydenberg speaking on the 30th of March this year. And he's right. The only thing anyone can seem to talk about right now is how expensive food and fuel are. 
But it's not just a conversation for some people. It's a reality, a daily burden hovering over them, controlling what they can and can't do. It's not a choice and it's not their fault. It is just the truth. Food is so expensive now, it's like nearly double. Food skyrocketing, everything's skyrocketing. I'm feeling deflated. I'm feeling like a shit mum because I can't give my children everything that they need, not a want, it's everything that they need. Yeah, something's sort of got to give. We've been hearing about this issue in the media quite explicitly lately, especially in the lead up to the budget announcement and still now in the lead up to the election. And whilst we hear the facts and the expert predictions, which are all very important, one thing I felt was lacking were the people, those who are living in this crisis. So, what did I do? Well, I turned to the one thing I knew, social media and Facebook specifically. I managed to get approved in a group page made for mothers in a certain area, and after scrolling for way too long, I decided to publish a post. I asked anyone who would like to speak about their situation with the high cost of living to message me directly. What you're about to hear is their stories, and the lengths that they've had to go to, some of which they deeply regret. They're honest, they're real, and they're the human voices that we have been missing. Hi, I'm Jackie. I'm 33, and I have two children, aged four and one, and I live in Melton. Up until recently, Jackie has predominantly been a stay-at-home mum. She does have a civil celebrant certificate, but she has found herself picking up side jobs as a way to bring in more money. I'm like doing paid surveys, I'm doing like air tasker gigs, I'm doing mystery shopping, like, and there's such an increase in women doing this because it's not exceptionally high paying, but you don't really need any qualifications, you don't need a resume, and you can do it like 100% on your own time. With the two years of lockdown, we were very lucky, my husband kept getting paid his base salary, he's back so he can earn a little bit of overtime, but we're actually kind of worse off than we were during the pandemic because now we do have to factor in the price of fuel so yeah it is something that we're budgeting for and obviously trying to limit our excess fuel usage as much as we can so walking or just not going places as much as possible you know we're doing less we're catching up less we're going out for coffees less it's kind of just like an unspoken understanding that we can't all do these things as much as we used to Another woman I spoke to said she's always had to be cautious with her spending but the current inflation levels have exacerbated it I'm quite strict on budgeting anyway, (laughs) so literally my budget is to the cent. But for others, their situation has escalated much further. I spoke with Jane. That's not her real name and you won't be hearing her real voice either. Why? Jane is extremely vulnerable and you'll come to understand how. I fell behind in rent during COVID and I had a payment plan with um, my real estate agent and the owner. However, even though Jane had kept up with this plan, she received an eviction notice. The tenant decided they wanted to do bathroom repairs. So we had 60 days to try and find somewhere. And um, I made a stupid decision, decided to stop paying the payment plan. And the real estate took me back to VCAT and they got an eviction notice for us straight away. As a result of this, her time to move out was cut in half. We couldn't find anywhere. It was like, the rental market is really hard at the moment. And we kept buying, couldn't find anywhere. So on the day of the eviction, the Social Housing and Support Network put her family up in a Flemington apartment for six weeks. After that, there was nowhere to go, so I had to come to my dad's and we're staying basically on couches. Also, just to provide you with some context, Jane's partner is currently out of work after being involved in a car accident a few years ago. Because of this, he is solely relying on government support to get by. 
he broke his neck, fractured his skull. When I asked Jane what her biggest worry is at the moment, she told me it was her kids. I'm worried that they're going to be affected by later in life. So, so I'm worried that their emotional well-being might be affected. So like my daughter is definitely affected and my son I worry because he doesn't really say much. So I don't know, maybe not saying much is probably worse. <laughs> He's silent, so it does worry me. She also shared with me a choice that she made recently, a choice she acknowledges now as stupid and a choice she's still dealing with. I'm going to say something else. I've lost my job because I actually stole from them. Yeah, because I was out loud. Um, I was in a really low place. And it's like I wanted to lose my job because things were going really well at my work and I didn't want that to happen. So, yeah, I did something really stupid at my workplace and I've got some self-care to do at the moment. This is a stark reminder of how desperate some people can become. But Jane is hopeful that they will come out of this on the other side. It may not be in the next few weeks or months, but she knows they'll get there eventually. I'm a, I'm a very positive person, so I know that in a year's time I'm not going to be in the same situation, so I look at that, you know what I mean, all the time. So yeah, I have down moments and stressful times, but then I also pick myself up pretty quickly. According to the Reserve Bank of Australia, underlying inflation is forecast to increase to three and a quarter percent by mid-2022, before easing as international and domestic supply chain pressures subside. So with this current cost of living here to stay, what can Australia do? Well, some of this has been addressed in the federal budget announced on the 29th of March this year. The government declared that they're lowering the fuel excise and delegating more money to ensure childcare becomes more affordable. Additionally, a one-off payment of $250 to eligible pensioners, welfare recipients, veterans and eligible concession card holders will become available. And, from July 1st this year, a one-off $420 cost of living tax offset will be introduced. However, most of these new additions seem to only target the present. They aren't long-term solutions, and when speaking to the women, they all agreed it won't be enough. So instead we're left wondering... How long can suffering like this continue in a country as prosperous as ours? I wish I could give you the answer, but it is still yet to be determined. However, I do want to leave you with one message, a message that I constantly recognise being echoed through each of the women's stories I listen to. It is even a message that I heard from Food Bank and the Bendigo Food Share. And it's simple. Do not be afraid to reach out. There is a phenomenal uh, network of community organisations that simply exist to help you. Anyone who feels that there is stigma and shame, I want to reassure you that there is nothing to be ashamed of. We're all in it together. Like, it doesn't matter what side of politics you're on. It doesn't matter whether you're a large corporate, uh, an individual, that we all have a role to play in helping to solve or positive and positively contributing towards ensuring that everybody is deserving in Australia to have food on their plate every day. This has been Amelia Hurst for Undercover. Now to our last story. Too many women are told it's normal to suffer painful periods, cramps, pain during urination, pain during intercourse, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, but there are one in nine women who have endometriosis, an incurable condition which plagues their body with pain in so many forms. Aching, spasming, throbbing, shooting, stinging pain. 
The sheer variability of the disease makes it very difficult to diagnose in primary care, resulting in an average of seven years of suffering before an actual diagnosis is reached. It's no wonder that a woman can then feel entirely trapped in or even victim to her own body and utterly perplexed that no one seems to care. Our reporter here at Undercover, Sarah Lilly, is one of these women. And you actually have endometriosis yourself. Tell me about what you did when you went to visit the GP. So for a little experiment, I thought it could be fun to go to a random medical center and present with endometriosis symptoms to a GP I've never seen before, just to see what I would get from them in a way of, I guess, help or guidance. Anyway, so I talked to this guy and, you know, he had quite good bedside manner and all that, but I think he really just kind of... The vibe I got from him was he was more so just thinking, you know, that's just you. That's That can't mm. really be a problem. Mm. That's just your body. Mm. And he said that over and over again. And I go into that briefly in the story and I was kind of like, well, don't think being in pain is normal. This one? Please come in. Waiting rooms suck, especially waiting rooms at your local GP's office. Well, at least in my experience. Often I'm nervous, annoyed, and impatient. Waiting to be ignored is never a pleasurable experience. As doctors are typically late, I would try to keep my attention focused on the notes I'd written on my phone. I would rehearse in my head what I was going to say and how I was going to say it, over and over, until the words were clear enough in my head to say them out loud. Would they understand me this time? Or was this going to be another hopeless attempt to gain any clarity around the pain that I was having? Talking to women I've connected with on social media or friends that have gone through the same trauma made me realize how similar all our experiences had been. feel it a lot when I'm going to sleep. I definitely feel it if I need to go to the toilet. Like I can't wait. I need to go when I need to go. And yeah, I guess it impacts me because everything that I do, I'm thinking about how it's affecting me. Like if I, if my diet changes or my lifestyle changes or I'm stressed or I'm eating a lot more red meat or anything that's somewhat inflammatory, I'm just thinking about how it's affecting me. That was Lauren Harney. She's a full-time nurse. And I think that even now I have such a poor understanding of what's going on in my body. It's not just a lack of education that means that people might be in a bit of pain. Like it's a lack of education that means that people could have things go seriously wrong. Endometriosis is an incurable disease. It affects one in nine women and the average time it takes for a woman to be diagnosed is seven years. Endometriosis is a highly complex disorder. It has an extensive list of symptoms, often masked through its similarities with other conditions. I think the one thing that has most affected, has most challenged us in managing endometriosis is the variability in this condition. Professor Ian Fraser is a reproductive specialist. He's talking with Endometriosis Australia. And when he means the variability with the disease, he's referring to the variability in the symptoms, the variability in the cases in regards to the stages. Uh, So just because you have stage one endometriosis doesn't mean you're not going to be in severe pain. And just because you have stage four endometriosis doesn't mean you're going to have any pain at all. So it really is a case-by-case basis when it comes to people with endometriosis, which makes it hard for practicing physicians to diagnose the condition because it is so different for everyone. The main symptoms that 
women present to me with uh, definitely pelvic pain symptoms. That can be pain with periods, which is quite common for women with endometriosis. But a lot of women with endometriosis might get pain at other times of the cycle or randomly. Uh, they can also get pain when they're having bowel motions or emptying their bladder. That was Dr. Erin Nesbitt-Hawes for Endometriosis Australia. This is often why physicians misdiagnose women with endometriosis. But why does this happen so regularly? And why are women constantly not taken seriously? As an experiment, I booked an appointment at a local medical centre to see what response I would get when presenting with symptoms of endometriosis. The thing that got me the most was when he kept insisting that it was most likely just my body. A sense of disbelief rushed through me. What does that do to a woman and their relationship with their body? How does that affect a woman's mental health? Not only did I feel let down, but I felt hostage to my own body. The number one cause of all women, I'm telling you now, number one, in general, number one cause of disease is stress. And that's why we have such a pandemic of women's health issues because of the fact that women are chronically stressed. We're, we're literally working nine to five, five days a week, most women. It's the frustration of having to deal with, you know, and, and like an, and more pain. Gabrielle Jackson an associate editor at The Guardian newspaper and author of the book Pain and Prejudice talks about what it is like for women who live with endometriosis. Living in pain does create mental health problems. You know, traditionally it was just told it's just a mental health condition, it's not pain. Now we know that those two things can really interact and it's not your mental health condition that's causing your pain, but being in pain and the reduced quality of life that comes with that does cause anxiety and depression. I think that there is a huge financial burden that never gets talked about. Uh, You know, often it's said that, oh, women with low socioeconomic status often have more pain. Well, it's so expensive to treat pain that often that's a a, um, self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's cyclical because often you can't work or you want to work but you're not entitled to sick leave so then you have to leave a job and it's really hard to maintain steady employment for a lot of people with these conditions that have quality of life impacts so I think that all those things interact with each other and we need to think about them as a whole not being believed is so crippling and I think we have never really counted the cost of that on women's lives so what is being done? How are people helping these women? And I just listen to heartbreaking story after. Heartbreaking story. And I walked out of there and I said, we're going to do something about this. And linked up with Greg Hunt. Despite more funding and research and pathetic speeches from politicians pretending like they care, have we really ever acknowledged the fight these women have? In society, women are constantly fighting to be accepted, taken seriously and recognised. But to be not taken seriously when in pain, this does more damage than you could possibly imagine. The first step in all of this is to listen and please stop telling women that painful periods are normal. That was episode one of Undercover. I'd like to thank my talented assistant producer, Amelia Hurst, and our reporters, the honest and vulnerable Sarah Lilly, and Tom Pazis for telling us what it's got to do with the price of fish. Also, a big thank you to our executive producers, Tito and Bernadette. 
soon. Also, we're happy to be here on campus. <laughs> we're really happy to be on campus with Tito. Um, um, shout out to Tito. Thank you, Tito. Um, living the dream and all that. <laughs> <laughs>